Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. Our goal is not only to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon in conversation about what we're learning and what God is doing in our lives and in our community. This sermon comes from our first 2023 sermon series, Speaking with a Wesleyan Voice, Rediscovering Our Methodist Tradition for Today. You can find out more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. But speaking about the different views that some churches have between you know, Methodists and Baptists, for instance, about what baptism looks like, there is a Baptist and a Methodist having breakfast one day, and they were talking about their churches. And they got onto the topic of how their churches performed baptisms. And as they got to talking, the Methodist guy asked the Baptist guy, he said, well, how much water exactly do you need to baptize somebody for it to really count? Like, knee-high, is that enough? Baptist said, no, 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 not knee-high. You need way more water than that. What if it comes up to the waist? Is that good enough? Nope, waist isn't good enough. That's not enough water. The Methodist guy continues, well, what about up to the shoulders? Does that count? Is that enough water for a baptism? Baptist guy says, nope, you gotta go even further than that. So the Methodist guy says, up to the top of the head? Baptist guy says, yep, now you're talking. That's what you need for a baptism. Methodist guy looks at him and says, that's just where we put it. (laughs) If you don't get it now, maybe you will later. It's okay. My teenage sons are glad they're not here or else they'd be groaning in the front row. They, they, They love my pastor jokes. They love my dad jokes. But not really, that's all right. But in all seriousness, before we go any further, I do wanna be clear about this. We're gonna be talking about baptism today, but I don't think that our thoughts on baptism come anywhere near salvation level issues. I think we can agree to disagree on the mode or the timing of baptism and still choose to love one another and serve and worship alongside each other. So my goal in this sermon isn't to convince anyone that what I think about baptism is the only right way to think about it, but my goal is to lay out, you know, we've been in this series of speaking with a Wesleyan voice and how our Methodist traditions have something to say to today. So I want to lay out what Methodists have believed about baptism since we got started, which is that baptism is a sacrament, which is another fancy church word for a means of grace, which is a fancy phrase for the normal ways that God pours his grace into our lives. It's, It's a sacrament by which we are incorporated into the community of faith right? It can be applied to, to first-generation believers at the time of their conversion, or it can be applied to the children of believing parents. Wesley said of baptism in his treatise on baptism. Again, more thrilling reading that I'm doing, so you don't have to. Um, Wesley said, it, baptism is the initiatory sacrament which enters us into covenant with God. It was instituted by Christ, who alone has power to institute a proper sacrament. It's a sign, a seal, a pledge, and a means of grace, perpetually obligatory on all Christians. We know not indeed the exact timing of its institution, but we know it was long before our Lord's ascension. And it was instituted in the place 
of circumcision. For as that circumcision was a sign and a seal of God's covenant, so is baptism. So Wesley, following the grand tradition of the church, celebrated infant baptism as a sign and a symbol of the preventing grace that God works in our lives, which works in our lives even before we're able to believe and which makes possible, uh, our, which makes possible us responding to God's grace in the future. It's, it's a beautiful picture of grace working in our lives to bring an infant for baptism. I mean, think about a baby for just a moment. Baby can't earn our love, but they are loved. They don't do anything to deserve their place in the family. They can't help themselves in any way. They don't contribute to the family. We work on their behalf in ways that they don't even begin to understand and and won't until and unless they have their own children somewhere down the road. The same is true in our own lives when it comes to the grace of God working in us, right? We can't earn it. We can't earn God's love. We don't do anything to deserve our place in God's family. While we were dead in our sins, scripture says, Christ died for us. We can't do anything even to save ourselves. And yet God works on our behalf to draw us to himself. I think that's something we, we struggle with, particularly as Americans. We'd rather think that we have a, a choice to make, a role to play when it comes to our baptism. But we all come to God in baptism like a baby. But Wesley also saw baptism as a Christian parallel to Jewish circumcision. It's our, it's our entrance into the community of faith the church, the covenant people of God, as we saw in the passage that Will read for us from Colossians chapter two, beginning in verse 11. It says, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, the early church, they saw this connection between circumcision and baptism. And just as, as Jewish boys were circumcised on the eighth day from their birth, before they could affirm the covenant, before they could do anything, they were incorporated into that covenant. They were brought into that covenant people. So too, they believed, the early church, that Christians could baptize their babies. And in bringing them in the faith of their parents, those children were marked as the people of the covenant. They were given an identity in Christ. And then they were taught and trained and discipled as they grew. Now, there still comes a time for most people when they have to come to a point where God's convicting grace is working in their lives and they have to repent and respond to the work of God in their life, right? That's the move we talked about last week of moving from preventing grace, the grace that works before 
to convicting and justifying grace. When we're baptizing a baby, we're celebrating God's grace in bringing us into that community of faith, including us in that new covenant that Jesus instituted, even before we can make that choice. This is not just a Methodist thing. It goes back through our Anglican heritage, back through the Catholic Church, back to the period that we would think of as the early church. The first written reference we have to infant baptism is dated to about 180 AD. And it was, uh, it was referenced in Irenaeus' work against heresies. But I just want to make a comment. It, it wasn't listed as one of the heresies. They're talking about it in a positive way. Um, he was, but he mentions that baptism of infants. So even from that young age. And so what I'm sharing today uh, has been the received tradition of most every Christian in most every place at most every time in the history of the church. At least it was until the rise of the Radical Reformation in 1525 as part of the Protestant Reformation. It was a subsect of that. And it gave rise to a group of churches known collectively as the Anabaptists, which means the re-baptizers. Because they posited that based on a plain reading of Scripture, of the New Testament, baptism should only be received by those who have repented and professed faith for themselves. So we often think of that as a Baptist view of baptism, but the first Baptist church wasn't begun until 1609. And so it goes back even a little further than that. But prior to the rise of the Anabaptist tradition in the 16th century, infant baptism, household baptism was the assumed practice. Wesley refers to this in his treatise on baptism saying, if the whole church of Christ for 1700 years together baptized infants and were never opposed to it till the last century but one, it follows that infants may, yea, ought to be baptized and that none ought to hinder them. So for Wesley, following the articles of religion of the Church of England, the baptism of young children was to be retained in the church. Now I can hear some of the objections already, right? I can hear them. But Scott, just because it's tradition doesn't mean we should keep on with it, right? The New Testament never talks about being baptized, about babies being baptized. It talks about baptism, but it doesn't talk about babies being baptized. And while I agree with you about tradition, right? We should never assume that what we are doing, that just because we're doing something, we should continue to do it just because that's how we've always done it. I'm not willing to throw away tradition just because I don't understand it at first glance. If something is done the way we've always done it, it's worth asking why we've always done it that way. It's kind of like the story of the woman who was getting ready to cook a ham. So she pulled it out of the fridge, pulled out the pan, cut off both ends of the ham, stuck it in the pan, and put it in the oven. Her husband sits down at the dinner table and says, Honey, why, why did you cut the ends off the pan or off the ham before you cooked it? She said, oh, I don't know. That's how my mom always did it. So she goes back to her mom and her mom says, oh, I don't know. I really thought about it. That's how my mom did it. So 
the original wife, she goes to her grandmother and she says, Grandma, why did you always cut the ends off your ham before you cooked it? She said, oh, I didn't have a pan big enough. (laughs) There was no real reason, but it got passed on. So while I agree that we shouldn't just keep doing things because we've always done them that way, that can actually be the the death sentence for a church. Um, While I agree about that, I don't think we can make an argument that only believers should be baptized simply by arguing from the New Testament's silence on the issue, right? It's not the same as arguing for something which the New Testament has prohibited. And if we were going to apply that same logic across the board, we uh, actually wouldn't allow women to participate in Holy Communion because the New Testament never speaks of women when it comes to the Lord's Supper, right? But none of us understand Scripture as leading in that direction just because it doesn't say women, right? None of us would consider that Scripture's intent. So let's take a look at some of what Scripture does say about baptism and why I believe it can be a, we can be faithful to Scripture even while standing within this tradition of the church, which goes back to the earliest days and still practiced by churches in the Methodist tradition, but not only Methodist, in the Roman Catholic, the Orthodox, the Lutheran, Anglican, the Presbyterian, the Reformed, etc., etc. So, let's start with Scripture. And in starting with Scripture, let's start with Jesus. In uh, Matthew chapter 28, one of the few times that Jesus is recorded as speaking about baptism, just before he ascended to the Father, he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A familiar passage. We call it the Great Commission. Now, in English, we tend to read Jesus' commission as containing Four verbs, right? We see go, make, baptize, teach. But the reality is, in the Greek, there's only one imperative verb in that passage. One command that's given to the disciples. It's not teach. It's not baptize. It's not even go. It's make disciples. That was what Jesus was emphasizing. Make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching, they're all participles. And if you remember your English grammar lessons, a participle is used to describe the action of a verb. So here in Matthew 28, Jesus is saying, make disciples of all nations. That's the important thing. You're going to do it by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. But it doesn't really give us an order of operations, so to speak. Jesus doesn't say, go to the people, teach them what I've commanded, then baptize them, then you've made a disciple. Or he doesn't say, make disciples by teaching them, then baptizing them. It's, just, it's not there. The key focus, though, for the church was to be on making those disciples of all nations. Now, maybe you're you're familiar with your New Testament, and you said, but doesn't Mark 
record the Great Commission a little differently? Doesn't Mark record Jesus saying that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved? And he does. So let's look at that passage together. Mark 16, beginning in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be baptized, will be condemned. See, it's right there. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. So again, verse 16, believe and baptize. They're both participles, modifying will be saved. That's the the important part that Jesus is focusing, but there's no indication of priority or sequence. And if that's where you want to base your theology of baptism, based on that verse alone, I'd love to see what you do with verse 17 and 18. You can't just stop there. Uh, I want to see you picking up the snakes and drinking the poison and all that kind of stuff. All right, so that's what Jesus said. He doesn't say much about baptism. He was baptized, talks about it, Clearly, he talked about it enough that the apostles understood the importance of it, but it's not recorded for us in Scripture. So let's take a look at Acts. We'll start in chapter 2, where the church started. And on that day when Peter was preaching to the gathered crowd there on the day of Pentecost, they were responding to what God was saying to them through the apostle Peter. And they asked, what must we do to be saved? Peter answered them in uh, verses 38 and 39 and says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Repentance, baptism, Both given as a command, they're important. We need to do both. But notice what verse 39 says. The promise is for you and for your children. Now, Acts 2 doesn't explicitly state that there were children there or that Peter was commanding, directing for those children to be baptized. But what I think he's saying is that God intends for those children to be included in the covenant, to be included in the promise that God was giving to those who were gathered there that day. And it's worth noting at this point, as we continue, we're going to look at a few more passages in Acts. Um, It's worth noting that the context of the New Testament needs to be accounted for, right? Because everywhere the gospel's being preached in the book of Acts, whether that's by Peter or Paul, or Simon, or someone else, everywhere it's being preached in the book of Acts, people are hearing the gospel for the first time, right? And those who believe are coming to faith, not from a Christian uh, legacy or heritage, but for the first time, they're first generation believers. It's what we would call a missionary context, And a first-generation church context is going to have different concerns than the same church will have in subsequent generations. So 
Of course, as we read through Acts, the majority of the people that we hear being baptized, like the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8, or even Saul, who was also known as Paul in Acts chapter 9, they're adults, right? And they're coming to faith in Jesus for the first time out of another religious context. There are some other passages later in Acts that I want to take some time to look at in which we hear about whole households being baptized. So if you turn over to Acts chapter 16, looking at verses 14 and 15, it says, One of those listening to Paul teaching was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, so somehow understood the Jewish concept of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia heard Paul preaching. And Lydia responded to the message that she was hearing from God through Paul. And her whole household was baptized. Similarly, a little later in that same chapter, Paul and Silas have been arrested because of what they're doing there in um, Macedonia. And uh, they get arrested, they're put in prison, but they're miraculously freed from that imprisonment by an earthquake in the middle of the night. And when the jailer realizes what has happened and that he's failed his duty, he's about to kill himself. And Paul intervenes and shares the gospel with him. And that jailer who is about to kill himself says in verse 30, he then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He and his whole household. That's, That's the point there. He and his whole household. Because the jailer believed the good news. One more, a couple chapters later. Acts chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. They're in Corinth now. And it says, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul and were baptized. A couple things I want to mention about these passages. First, we have to remember that these were among the first converts to the way of Jesus in those areas. So we hear about adults believing and being baptized. No argument from me there. But we also hear about the head of the family believing, which resulted in their whole household being baptized. As one theologian put it, the solidarity of the family in baptism and not the individual decision of the single member was the decisive consideration. Now you can argue that Acts doesn't specifically mention babies or children being part of those households. It's true. 
but it also doesn't say that they were all old enough to believe and choose baptism for themselves. And when we read Acts in that way, I think we're in danger of reading our own Western American individualistic worldview back into Scripture. The worldview of Scripture is far more communal than we are comfortable with in our American evangelical church tradition. But it doesn't make us right and Scripture wrong or the biblical worldview wrong. They had a different view of what it could mean for a community to decide. And so as Christians moved into the second and third generations of children being born into believing families, it was natural for them to begin to baptize each new member of their family, bringing them into the covenant community, bringing them into the community of faith and extending the blessing of God's grace to their children. As early as 215, one church father was writing, baptize first the children. And if they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or relatives speak for them. About 30 years later, a church father by the name of Origen wrote that this wasn't a new thing. He said, the church received from the apostles the tradition of giving baptism even to infants. And so here in the early church, it was the assumed position that, that the church had been taught by the apostles to baptize infants, to, to bring them into the covenant, just like the Jewish people did with circumcision. It may not have made it into the New Testament explicitly, but that was the apostolic teaching that had been passed down within the church. And so as Methodists who invite people to bring their babies to be baptized. We stand in the stream of Christian tradition and in our traditional Methodist baptism liturgy that was passed down from Wesley, we hear these words as the invitation and the description of baptism. It says, dearly beloved, baptism is an outward and visible sign of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through which grace we become partakers of his righteousness and heirs of life eternal. Those receiving the sacrament are thereby marked as Christian disciples and initiated into the fellowship of Christ's holy church. Our Lord has expressly given to little children a place among the people of God, which holy privilege must not be denied them. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, how he said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So we hear in there some phrases, things like we become partakers of his righteousness, heirs of life eternal, marked as Christian disciples. We say, how does that work if they aren't choosing, if they aren't responding themselves? It's what it is. It's what the church has always believed, that we can choose as parents to define the identity of our family, that we can make a stand in the place of our children to incorporate them, to include them into the covenant of God's blessing. And so after asking the parents to confess their own faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and accepting the responsibility to raise their children in the Christian faith, which includes keeping them under the ministry of the church until they can confess their faith for themselves, that child is baptized in the name of the Father 
and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean every child who's been baptized in this church has gone on to lead a Christian life? Sadly, no. Because there still comes a point in our lives where we have to choose how we're going to respond to the grace of God working in our lives. And, and we believe, as Methodists, that we don't, have to, uh, we don't have to accept that grace, right? That grace is not irresistible. We can resist that grace. We can work against that grace. And some people choose to do that, even though their family chose to include them in that stream of God's grace, so it doesn't guarantee that someone's going to become a Christian, going to be saved, but it puts them in the place where God's grace can continue to work in their lives. Then after the family has done that, the baby's been baptized, the congregation right, has a vow to make to God and to the child. With God's help, we say. We will so order our lives after the example of Christ that this child, surrounded by steadfast love, may be established in the faith and confirmed and strengthened in the way that leads to life eternal. You see, we as the church have a role to play in this too. It's not just on the parents. We've got a role to play in investing ourselves in our children, in surrounding them by love so that they can be established in their own faith. They can see how God has called us to live. That's why baptisms are often done in the context of a worship service when the gathered people of God are together in worship. Now, I'm not trying to convince you of why we should baptize babies. Well, maybe I am a little bit if I'm honest. But I'm doing so because I think it makes the most sense of the whole witness of Scripture. And the practice of the church down through the ages. And even though it rubs up against our sense of individualism, maybe especially because it rubs up against our sense of individualism, infant baptism is a reminder to us. It's a symbol to us that we are always saved into the community of faith and that we are brought into covenant with God, not by any choice that we make, but by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. And in a world that is ever more individualized and isolated, the sacrament of baptism extended to the children of those who put their faith in Jesus. It's a sign and a symbol to the world of what God is able to do by his grace in including us in his covenant people. That's why I wish we had a baptism to do today. But we don't. And so this morning as we close, I'm going to invite the band, you guys can make your way back up. But as we close, I want to invite you to, to say together the congregational vow that we make whenever a child is baptized in this church, reaffirming our commitment, not to an individual child, but to all the children who have come and been baptized in our church. I want you to think about the words that you're saying. And if you don't mean them, you don't have to say them. 
That's okay. But I want you to think about these words and reaffirm together this vow before God and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Phil, can we put that up? I I know I did it out of order. No, go to the one right before the benediction. I switched it up on you. I'm sorry. But let's repeat this vow together. With God's help, we will so order our lives after the example of Christ that our children, surrounded by steadfast love, may be established in the faith and confirmed and strengthened in the way that leads to life eternal.